Lord, would you help us to understand the the calmness, the, uh, the stability that comes to our souls when we do indeed understand and acknowledge and, and act as if we really did believe that you are Lord of everything. Amen. That you are Lord of everything. Yeah. That not even a sparrow falls apart from your purpose. That's right. That's right. God, help us to understand as best we might in our human capacities, which are very limited, this coexistence of, of your sovereignty, and, and yet you've given us a sense of, of, of personal responsibility. Our decisions do matter. And yet you, you manage your universe. You oversee your creation, not from a distance, you are intricately involved in all that's going on in the world that you made amongst the people that you made. God, help us to, to just ponder and be overwhelmed with, well, it's bigger than me. It's He's smarter than I am. That's, as we would sarcastically say, above my pay grade. But we're a part of what you're doing, God. You engage us in your work. You are Lord of everything. Even those who don't acknowledge your existence and think you're a myth. You are Lord of all. And might we find our great significance and joy knowing that you have called us to participate with you. Wow, what kind of love is this? That we should be called your sons and daughters. I thank you for this great love. And help us to make sense of, of the coexistence of your justice and your mercy. And 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 not to fall out of of, of not so much a balance, but an awareness that you hold both of these at the same time. So you send the flood in Noah's day, but you provide the ark to escape the flood. God, help us to be looking for those kinds of indicators because they're all over the place. They're, They're in every circumstance. Help us to know that. Help us to believe that. You are just, yet you are gracious. You are Lord over your creation. Speak to our hearts now to that end. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. You may be seated. Open your Bibles to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Open your Bibles to the prophecy, preaching of Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. We have come to, uh, well, the end, at least historically, of what we're looking at these days. I'm trying to get you this year. We started in March, I suppose it was March, uh, just getting the big picture. And we surveyed, and when I say surveyed, I mean like a quick flyover. Uh, so many details we, we did not catch. But we got the big idea here. I want you to catch this this big picture back up and back up and back up and get a, a very broad perspective of the purposes of God. And it's simply to, as well, I was just praying, to draw us into his his presence and we would get a sense of his purpose for his creation. And we see always His justice and yet His mercy. And they coexist. And we think they're contradictory. They are not. And just because we can't explain logically their coexistence, we think there's inconsistency with God. But there is not inconsistency with God. There's our inability to understand God because we are created beings. We are not equal to Him. I'm not a God. I believe there is but one God, and 
that God is creator of all things. We create gods for ourselves because we don't understand or often like the one, the truth, the living God. So we create a God for ourselves. Whether it's an idol that we bow down to and worship or it's simply our ancestors. So we remember our ancestors and we pray to them that they might talk to God on our behalf. Or if, if, if the inclination and the philosophical position is, is more towards reincarnation, so we, we worship the animals because well, the spirit of grandma might be in the animals. And so they become our gods. Or just creation is our god and, and it all just occurred and, and we are nothing more than the children of, of, of the universe itself. And so we give our acknowledgement and our dependence upon the universe. But there is a God, and he does rule over his creation, and he does engage us. He speaks to us through the universe itself, through the creation. And he speaks to us by his messengers. Sometimes those messengers are angels. The word messenger simply means angel, or the word angel simply means messenger. Or he speaks to us through the prophets, or the kings, or the judges, and into the New Testament through the apostles. And then every Christian becomes a mouthpiece for God. He speaks to us through his word, the people who deliver that word, the Old Testament, New Testament. And he engages us in action, pushing and pulling and moving and rearranging, getting our attention. And making you say, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, that's why he said that. Oh, that's why he did that. Oh, oh, I'm, I, I'm starting to get it. It's coming together. These are the ways of God. This is the, the voice of God speaking to us. And, and we've tracked that generally from March until now. So God is dealing with his people and they become rebellious. Well, you, you don't exist. We made you up and, and we're going to go our own way. And God says it won't work. I'm warning you it won't work. When we go our own way, we hurt ourselves and God draws us back. And he'll draw us back through chastisement and mercy. Chastisement and mercy. And he'll draw us back. And there's what I've been calling a reset. And there's scores of them. And, and, and we get away from God. And he'll chastise us and drive us back. And then there's a do-over. We start again. And over and over and over. And you see in the big pictures with, with the patriarchs, and then the flood. After the patriarchs, God makes covenant with Abraham. And so now he's, he's revealing himself to this family. And, and, and there's all kinds of craziness in this family. And it's just starting over and starting over. And starting over. And this family becomes a nation. And God enters into covenant with this nation because they are his people. They come from the sons of Abraham and, and, and they're descendants of David. And God is dealing with this people. God is dealing with this people. He sends judges in the book of Judges. Then he sends some kings. First king was not his choice. People say, we want to be like all the other nations and they have kings and pay taxes and we want to have a king and we want to pay taxes. Can you imagine that? Makes you wonder about the spiritual insight of those people. That's only partially funny. That's You've got to wonder about those people. And so King Saul came into existence and God said, now let me show you my king. And the most overlooked, unassumed, little shepherd boy, David, becomes God's king. But David's not a god. David is not sinless. And David scars himself, and everyone is affected by that. And, and we just keep seeing this, this coexistence of God using sinful people to accomplish his godly purposes. That, by the way, is the story of Job. And we just keep, keep learning the same lesson over and over and over. We walk with God and we wonder from God and He draws us back and, and okay, we're going to do better. And we walk with God and then we wonder from God, okay, we're going to start over. And so this nation is now 
in the very end of the Old Testament, they're being drawn back through chastisement. And God uses the Assyrians to bring judgment, chastisement on the ten northern tribes of Israel, and they're pretty much decimated. Generally, in a broad sense of the term, destroyed. The two southern tribes remain a bit longer. They call themselves Judah, tribe of Benjamin and Judah. And then the Babylonians come and conquer them. And that's the end of Old Testament Hebrew history. But in all of that preaching and all of, of that prophesying and, and, and all of that declaration of what God is doing, there was always a word of hope. Always a word of hope. You'll see it again this morning in Malachi's preaching. And I'm going to take one more before we get into December when the Messiah actually comes, the promised one of the Old Testament. It's been all of December. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. You'll see it prophesied in Malachi. Jesus is coming. We'll see it historically in December next month. One more week on the Old Testament, and, and I'm going to go back to Jeremiah's writings in the Lamentations, because there's this beautiful contrast. It's devastation beyond comprehension. And yet in the midst of all this dark, dark, hopeless despair, there is this word of hope and promise. You'll hear it. You'll see it today, and that will be our only focus next week, and then, like I said, December, Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. Malachi is straightforward. It's four chapters. The first two is, is God saying, here's why I'm chastening you. Here's, here's the reason. Here's the problem. Here's what's going on. And if you're wondering why I'm doing why not raise up the Assyrians? Why not bring in the Babylonians? Why is God letting this happen to his covenant people? Here's why. And he'll, real quickly, we'll see it in these first two chapters. But here's also what I'm doing. Chapter 3 and 4. Here's also what I'm going to do for you. And we'll conclude with those chapters. Quickly, chapters 1 and 2. <clears throat> Chapter 1 and verse 2. Oh my goodness. Now if you knew rigid languages like I do, <laughs> you, would, you would catch that little uh, colloquial use of language. Oh my goodness, how I have loved you. Verse 2. Catch the irony of you just don't understand how deeply I love you. Because if you did, you wouldn't respond to me and interact with me and accuse me the way that you do. Now, if you don't understand that language, it's probably because you've never been a parent. Because if you know anything about parenting, you, you know the kind of love you have for your children. And let's get this said, our love is not perfect like God's love. Our love can be very self-serving. Our love can be very uh, pride-driven. That I, I want you to, to do certain things so all the neighbors will think good about me. So I'm really exploiting my kids and I might get a good reputation out of their good behavior. God doesn't do that with us. If God's love for us is, 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 is as amazing as we know it is, and our love is less, Yet still we know, loving less than he loves us, we know the frustration of, why do you give me so much pushback all the time? You don't understand how much I love you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to keep you from hurting yourself. You think I'm fencing you in. Mm. Well, there it is in verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. Oh, I've loved you. But you say, you love us. Israel must be in their teenage years about you. You love us. Because if you loved us, and then we start. You do this, you do this, you give me this, you say this, you would say that. You don't love us. You can't relate to this, can't you? You feel this, ain't you? You hear the father who's got teenagers? Yeah. And then he gives this really controversial statement which shows up in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul takes this phrase and explains the love of God to us. He says, here's what you don't get. Esau have I, uh, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And think, oh my goodness, don't say hate. God said hate. I can't read the Bible anymore. God said hate. 
It's a relativistic term. It's, it's a point of reference. It's a comparison. My love for my covenant people is so deep and endless and, and, and persistent and, and, and amazing and beyond human comprehension that my love for Esau, my love for Abraham's other son, which was not the son of miraculous provision, but the son of human provision, my love for Esau is, is so tremendous, but my love for Jacob is so superior, deeper, it would look like I have no consideration for Esau. In fact, it would look like I hate him, but I don't hate him. I don't hate Esau, but my love for Jacob is so beyond your comprehension. This is my love for my covenant people. And Paul picks up with that and deals with the whole issue and explains the whole purpose of, of, of Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, to make a distinction between those, and you'll see it in chapter 3, those who fear me, we'll deal with that word fear if we ever get there, those who fear me and those who do not. That's chapter 3 and 4. It's introduced here in chapter 1. My love for my covenant people and my love for all people, but my love for my covenant people is so intense and, and, and so specific and so focused that you might look like, yeah, I don't much care for these people hardly at all. Not true. Not true. It's just that his love here is so amazing. And yet they're the other ones are saying, you don't love us. You don't love us. If you're a teenager sitting here, let, let me tell you, your, your parents, generally speaking, are nice and courteous to all the kids in the neighborhood. But they're not going to sacrifice their life and their time and their money for all the kids in the neighborhood. They're doing that for you. And that's crude and simplistic and shallow, but you get the idea of God's love for us. It's very particular. It is unending. It is deep. To the point of giving up his son. compared to the way he loves the neighborhood kid. Don't miss this. Don't, don't miss this. You got some nerve asking God, how, how do you love us? You don't see it. Wow. What? Wow. Verse 6, it's just more of a, you mock my name, you curse my name, you disregard me, you don't even pay attention, you ignore me, you, says all of that. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. I'm still in chapter 1 and in verse 8. You offer blind animals in sacrifice. Uh, what he's saying is when you come and, and, and bring sacrifice, that's the law of Moses, the Old Testament required, because those sacrifices were a picture of my son Jesus. You, you come and, and something sheds its blood and dies, that you can go home with a clear conscience. Like Jesus comes and sheds his blood and dies, that we can be forgiven of our sins and have a clear conscience before God. So all the Old Testament sacrifices are foreshadowings, pictures of the coming Messiah, Jesus. So, so when you come and, and make your sacrifice, which is a picture of Jesus, you bring up some raggedy old stray cat? <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? That's the representation of Jesus? No, it, it ought to be the best of a flock. The cleanest, the purest, the, the most not scarred up and mangy. Oh, Jesus, not scarred up and mangy. You, you get the illustration here. Like, like, we're having a food drive, and you go through the pantry and find some dented up can that expired 13 years ago. That's good enough for them. That's what he means when he says you, you you come to me and worship with with you make it all about you. And you throw me a bone and say, we, we, we go to church. We, we we get our verse off the Bible that first thing in the morning every day. Well aren't we just wonderful? That's the point he's making here. 
You offer blind animals. Isn't that evil? You, you offer those that are lame or sick. Isn't that evil? And now catch the logic. Present that to your governor. We tend to respond to human pressure with more regard than we do to divine pressure because, well, God's not actually going to hit us. And He's in heaven and He loves us. But the governor, He put me in jail. The governor, the governor, the governor, the governor. We respond to pressure we can see and feel. And God says, well, if that's what it takes, then feel the Assyrians and feel the Babylonians. And you know what's worse than suffering from the Assyrians and the Babylonians or high taxes or picture pressure? You know what's worse? That sense of wondering, does God even know that I exist? Am I alone in the world? Am I connected to God? Does God care about me? Do I know God? Does God know me? There's nothing worse than that sense of fearful, lonely isolation. Is there a God? Does He care about me? Does He even know I exist? Well, the answer to that is yes. But they're acting as if, no, we have to respond to other people's pressure. God just, he just keeps love. It's okay. We're cool with that. You know, in fact, forget Jesus. Forget Jesus because God is a loving God. Here's the, here's a very contemporary theory I've encountered the last two, three years, interacting and talking with people on the street, as they say. Oh yeah, okay, I believe in your Jesus, but it, it's no big deal because after all, your God's a loving God, so uh, I'm going to do what I want, live the way I want, and when I stand before God in heaven, say, hey, where's the love? Come on, where's, where's the love? And we presume upon the love of God. Like teenagers. We take and 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 take and... And we take, and we take, and we take, and we take, and what? What? But you love me. Wow. And that's Israel, and that's God, and that's you, and that's me. That's us. And this is why the Babylonians came, and the Assyrians came. And in Jesus' day, it will be the Romans. This is why. Go to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Look at verse 7. Chapter 2 and verse 7. The lips of the priest should guard knowledge. And the people should seek instruction from the priest's mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord. But you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. And you've corrupted the covenant of Levi. He's talking to the priest now. The very people who should be talking about the real answers to life have abandoned God's answers to life and they're giving pop psychology. That sounds like a 21st century church problem. My fear is that a, I don't know, is it 50%? Is it 10%? Is it 90%? I don't know. But it's pretty clear there's a bunch of preachers these days who aren't preaching because God has prompted them. They're preaching because, hey, there's a buck to be made here. That's not a new problem. It's right here in chapter 2. It's, it's right there in chapter 2. And he deals with worship. Look at verse 11. Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary, which he loves, by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now don't miss this. Don't miss this critical point. God has always been multicultural, to use the 21st century phrase. God is not racist. And there were scores and scores and scores of proselytes, people who converted and came under the covenant, the spiritual covenant of Abraham. And we've seen many of them in, in, in the scriptures. Uh, classic, uh, just one, right, just right there, just one. Classic illustration is uh, the Moabite who married and was is widowed and she went back home and 
room. Here's this Moabite room. And the Bible is filled with those pictures over and over and over. So God is not racist. No, no, no non-Jews. No non-Jews. God is very spiritual. And he is saying, no pagans. Right. I don't care if you're Gentile. Get married. Convert. But it's got to be a spiritual unity. Now you might think that's an old, old, old problem. Well, I, I, I'm not trying to bring up old dirt, but let's just let's just tell the truth about all situations. When our first daughter began seeing a black man, everybody said, "Hey, hey, hey, hey!" And I said, "What, what, what, what?" <laughs> It's the spirit of a person that matters. And I can, in fact, have some spiritual conversation with a couple of fathers. He said, you're, you're worried that my daughter is saying a really nice, nice, courteous, he's making his way towards Christ, black man, I'm more worried about your professing daughter who's sleeping around. Well, they, they don't go to church here anymore. <laughs> We're picking the wrong sins to fight about. As if not being white is a sin? Are you kidding me? The problem here isn't that they're Gentile. The problem is they're, they're pagan. They don't worship Jehovah. They don't think Jehovah exists. They created some other God. And they call him whatever they call him. This was Solomon's sin. It's interesting. The Bible emphasizes his spiritual sin and doesn't even mention the thousand women he did that with. 300 wives, 700 concubines, as if that's a secondary issue. The problem is they brought in idol worship. And he speaks of that here. Malachi does to the people of his day. You're bringing in this wicked, wicked theology, philosophy. And it's decimated the nation. You've not influenced them they had rather influenced you. And that's the problem here in chapter 2. So, they marry in verse 11. Look at verse 13. The second thing, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because in all regards, your offering or accepts favor with your hand. You live your life however you want, as if you don't have to give any account to God. God who blesses and blesses and blesses. Parents who give and give and give. And they would say, well, I'm do what I want. I just love these stories. That It happens in every generation. It happens in every generation. Uh, kids say, get out of my room. And the parents say, this ain't your room. You have a room. You're living in my house. I, I never had a biological son, and the girls would say, this is my dress. I said, look, I have no interest in wearing your dress, but that ain't your dress. Now, God's never talked like that to me, but that is the relationship. So let me be saying, God, back off, this is my heir. <laughs> no, this is pretty much God's heir. And on and on and on that principle goes. The second thing in verse 13 is you cry, but why doesn't God listen to us? <laughs> why am I not listening to you? Are, are, are you kidding me? We're very interested in God hearing us. We are not interested hardly at all in us hearing from God. Just let me do what I'm going to do, and when I get jammed up, I'll cry out, and then you give me a hand, okay? That's the relationship. Just like teenagers. 
Got nothing but love for teenagers, but Mark Twain said, from 14 to 18, you should just put them in a box, feed them through a slot, and let them out later. <laughs> he did, by the way, have daughters. <laughs> Back on track. These women that you've married that weren't Hebrew, they, they weren't in covenant relationship to the living God, they brought in false theologies and idolatry. In verse 16, you abandoned them. Chapter 2, verse 16. And you just forsook them. You just walked away. You just, I'm done with them now. Had my little whatever I wanted and, and that's over. And now, now I'm looking for a good little Jewish girl. And God said, you, you, you're just driven by self. You, you have no honor. You, you, you have no discipline. You, 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 you have nothing to do with, with living my ways. He condemns them in verse 16 for deserting their wives. Finally, the very last of the chapter, verse 17, you've wearied the Lord with your words. We you say, how? How, God? Why? Are we... Don't you love us? Aren't we wonderful? What's wrong with us? And here's what you say. Everyone who does evil is good. You think wrong has become right, but when it doesn't go your way, look at the very last line of verse 17. Then you say, where's the justice? You want to get away with whatever you want to get away with. But when someone else does stuff, oh, we're, how come God going to straighten him out? Does any of this sound 20th, 21st century to you? There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon tells us. Here's the reason the Assyrians came, the Babylonians came. Here's why. Chapters 1 and 2. Now there is hope. There's significance. Oh, I spent too much time describing the problem, not enough time to show you the solution. It begins in chapter 3 and verse 1. I will send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, second person, in whom you like, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who, who can stand when he, when he appears? For he is like a refiner's pot. Catch that phrase, refiner's Fire. Is that verse 2? Verse 3. That's verse 2. He is a refiner's fire. God's going to bring a fire. But the fire is not to destroy. It's to refine. Chapter 4 is a fire to destroy. Chapter 3 is a fire to refine. You know what refiner's fire does? It takes gold but burns off the dross, the, 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 the waste, the iron, the junk. It separates the true jewel from the junk that attached to it in the, in the earth. And it's heat, it's heat that separates the two. It's pressure that separates the two. It's chastisement, that it's, 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 it's discipline that separates the two. I'm going to refine you. I'm going to get rid of the junk. I'm going to get rid of the stuff that makes you stink and smell and makes you offensive to the world. And, and forget me. I'm, I'm going to eliminate all of that. I'm going to get rid of all the excess, the baggage, the stuff that's in the way, the stuff that keeps the gold from shining. I'm going to get rid of all that junk. But that takes some heat. You get mad at God when He comes. But He's just trying to make you pure. He's just trying to let you shine. You're trying to get rid of the junk that's in the way. All my cousins thought our family was wealthy because we had indoor plumbing and we had electricity. That's about all we had, but we did have indoor plumbing and we did have electricity since my book. They had an outhouse, which I was very familiar with. All my aunts and uncles, grandparents, church, And my aunts and uncles, they had, well, they said, kolo. You've got to speak something. Kolo. 
It was a kerosene lamp. And he had to trim the wick. And if he didn't trim the wick frequently, the globe would get covered with soot. And the flame is as bright as it's ever been. But you couldn't see the flame because of all the soot. Well, there's a bunch of Christians. Do you even tell they're Christian? Well, they're covered with soot. And he's going to send a refining fire. And we go, well, God, why are you so mean? To let your light shine. Now, if you'd work with me, we wouldn't have to do this. But you won't work with me. And you keep walking away from me. And you get covered up with soot. So he sends the refiner's fire. These are the ways of God. These are the ways of God. John the Baptist is coming in verse 1. He's talking about John the Baptist. My messenger, my messenger will come. But the messenger of the covenant, middle phrase of verse 1, is Jesus himself. Now, oh, you, you, you probably learned that in Bible college. No, Jesus uses this language. The Bible uses language, Old Testament and especially New Testament. John the Baptist is said to prepare the way. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And John the Baptist is a harsh guy. John the Baptist was straightforward. John the Baptist was, I'm way more like John the Baptist than I am like Jesus. God help me, God help me. That's not being funny. John the Baptist, in your face, direct, straightforward, pull no punches, can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Kind of a preacher. Love me some John the Baptist. It's a gift. <laughs> Jesus, on the other hand, is the messenger of the covenant. He comes saying, this is what the Father has always said. This is what was illustrated in the life of Abraham. And King David. And now me. That God has made a covenant, and he's going to keep his covenant. And when you disobey his covenant, he'll send a refiner, like John the Baptist. But I'm here to tell you, God has made a covenant. He's going to love his people. But his people are righteous people. And he starts preaching about what that righteousness would look like. Like the Beatitudes. And then the apostles pick up on that. And they expand on that. And all the, all the church epistles and, and the one another's that we've just been covering on Wednesdays. Which are nothing more than the Beatitudes in action. That's all they are. This is the functioning covenant. When people are in covenant relationship with God, this is what they sound like. This is what they look like. This is what they smell like. You can see the light of Christ in them because the soot has been washed away. But he's going to send a refiner before the messenger of the covenant comes. And that's what's happening in chapter 3. Look at verse 10. So here's another reason you're in trouble. I say, bring the full tithe to the whole storehouse, there may be food in my house. Therefore put me to test if I'll not open the windows of heaven. It's, the issue is an issue of faith. You're either going to trust your ways or you're going to trust my ways. And my ways are this. If you'll acknowledge me, I'll brush your socks off. I'll bless you beyond comprehension. But it's a matter of faith. It's not a matter of, oh, 10% down, 110% back. Okay, okay. This is a money-making deal here. That's what the prosperity preachers have made of these principles. But it's a principle of faith. Trust me. Honor me, and I'll take care of you. But I want you to trust me. Like a father wants his children to trust him. It was a sad day when, when the kids wouldn't jump off the porch. Jump, I'll catch you. I can't, I, Dad, I can't jump, I can't jump. Last week you would jump off the porch. We were laughing and getting like, I can't jump off the porch. I can't, Dad, I can't. I'm going to fall. You're going to drop me. And God is saying, I'll catch you. Jump. Jump. He was like, oh. maybe when I was a little baby, I can't do it. I can't jump on. I'm not going to jump. Dad, I'm too old to jump. Do something else, right? I ain't going to jump anymore. I used to pick them and throw them three feet in the air and catch them. And they would laugh and giggle. They would jump off the porch. They'd jump off the swing. Swing high. Jump out. I'll catch you. I ain't jumping no more. I ain't jumping no more. 
And we get like that with God. I'm going to jump in the middle here. Uh, no, I, I can't. I can't. I can't trust you with my money. I'm going to put my money somewhere else. <clears throat> I trust me with my money. I trust my advisor with my money. I don't trust you with my money, God. So people think, well, God's only interested in money. God is not interested in money. You kidding me? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, David says, and so on. He doesn't print more money. He just makes more gold. God doesn't need your money. But it is a trust-faith relationship. And faith shows up a lot with us in money. Faith shows up a lot, or lack of faith, shows up a lot with us in money. So that's an issue. And finally, he finishes verse 13, chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 3, and verse 13. Your words have been hard against me. But you say, how? How? So back to the teenagers. Don't talk to me like that. What did I say? What did I say? Words have been harsh. But you say, how? How? You said, it's vain to serve God. This is a waste of time. Because look, the wicked, their, their life is no different. In fact, they're wicked. Their life might be better than mine. I'm not killing myself. Why am I trying to be morally ethical and straight? Why? Why am I, why am I trying to be decent and, and not whoremongering? Why am I doing this? That's a waste of time. No, it's not. No, it's, 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 it's not a waste of time. Why am I being honest in my business deal? Why am I trying to live the life of, of, of faith and purity and morality and, and righteousness? Why am I killing myself with that? Well, that's what they're saying. That's that's what they're saying. Well, what's the problem? So, verse 15, we call the arrogant blessed. Rights become wrong. Mm. There are people having all fun. Oh, okay, for 15 minutes. But they don't talk about the guilt and the shame and the venereal disease that comes late. And after the third divorce, the kids are saying, Dad, what are you doing? Yeah. No one talks about that stuff. We talk about, I'm just trying to live my life and find my own happiness. Wow. And all the while, the creator of the universe, who loves us more than we can comprehend, is saying to me, come to me, all you that labor and you're burdened down with life, I'll give you rest. Mm. Yeah. I'll give you rest. Yeah, we heard that rest of Jesus loves the little children, all the children. Come on, I'm doing that. Okay. Okay. And there's a shift at the end of chapter 13 and verse 16. There's a shift. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. You know what that is? That's discipleship. They're speaking to one another. You know what? I got stupid. It's like the older... I was going to say sister because I raised daughters. It's the older child saying to the next younger child, hey, 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 you know what? Time out. Mom and dad, not as crazy as they sound. I know. Don't hate me when I'm telling you this, but mom and dad are crazy. You know why? Because I've been out there and I got scarred up and I come home and I realize, holy smoke, they were right the whole time. Holy smoke, they were right the whole time. That's verse 16. That those who had regard for God. The word fear doesn't mean, I, I, oh, he's going to hit me, he's going to hit me, well, I'm not in fear. It's not that kind of fear. It's, no, I regard that God knows what he's talking about. That my life is better when I walk with him. I have this recognition that he's the one with the power. He's the one that opens and closes doors. He's the one that guides my life. And I start sharing that with my brothers and sisters. That's discipleship. That's encouraging one another. Hey, hey! You're going to get messed up there. Been down that road. They spoke to one another. Those that fear the Lord, they spoke to one another. And a book of remembrance was written. Your name was put in a book that is going to be remembered. Do you hear that? Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Not because you worked your way. You worked your way 
by your good works. No, you came to realize I'm scarring up my life. Jesus is going to come in the Old Testament. We say Jesus has come to give me new life. I'm going to the cross and I'm getting that life. I have regard for God. I fear God. And God's ways always take us to the cross. God's preaching, Old Testament, New Testament, looking forward, looking back. Everything in the Bible is about His Son. The Son is coming. The Son has come. The Son is coming again. Everything God says to us is about His Son. And when people regard Him and His Son, oh, I'm going to write your name down. Write your name down. Wow. And that's where he takes the rest of chapter 4. That's the end of chapter 3. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubborn. I love before he gets to the word evildoers, he uses the word arrogant. Because evil flows out of arrogance. Yeah. Okay. I used to really enjoy uh, oh, just went blank there, went this actor who played the character Red, his hair is not red, in Shawshank. Morgan Freeman. I used to really enjoy watching Morgan Freeman's movies. Didn't hurt that he is a sailor. <laughs> Until I saw this interview and the interviewer says, you played a lot of these uh, comedies and others, and, and you were the voice of God, you were the presence of God, you, you played the role of God. And, and the interviewer said, so has that affected you spiritually? And, and uh, has that you know, had any impact on you? No. And he really, I'm not overemphasizing. He scoffed, he made a face. And he goes, no, no, he's God, come on. There's no God. I'm God, you're God, we're everyone's a God. And I thought, I said, just what Teresa said. Okay, I'm done. Um, some of you aren't watching football because of the flag issue. You know, I'm boycotting more than three. Like he cares. <laughs> That's what's happening here. All the arrogant and the evildoers shall become like stubble. <laughs> stubble. Just let that word sink in. Mm -hmm. It's not good to eat. It's not attractive. It's painful to walk on. Mm -hmm. There's nothing productive that comes from stubble. It's been burned up. This is what's left. It's been chewed up. This is what's left. It's nothing. It gets plowed under. It's meaningless, waste, leftover. And all the self-sufficient, arrogant, we know stuff. We're so smart, we don't even need God anymore. I've become a God. That's connected to wicked behavior, and they both wind up in nothing. Don't miss this. They both wind up in nothing. I'm sending a destroying fire. The day that is coming is like a blaze. He'll set them ablaze. I believe the preaching of chapter 4 is not the coming of Jesus to Bethlehem and then to Calvary. Chapter 4 is the coming of Jesus still yet in our future. We're living right now, I believe deeply, between chapter 3 and chapter 4. We're living in the days of chapter 3. After chapter 3, chapter 4 still lies before us. He has sent a refiner's fire. John the Baptist and the apostles and other Christians talking to you about you're on a pathway to destruction, man. You better turn to Jesus. We're in that day. The chapter 4 day is coming. This day is coming. He mentions in verse 5 Moses and Elijah. 
big turning points in biblical history. Folks with Moses and Elijah. So Moses got the people out of slavery, but they're still slaves in their minds. And they murmured against God, and they wouldn't live by faith, and they got mad at God. We were better off being slaves back in Egypt. Have you ever thought to yourself, if you profess Christ, you've been born of your spirit, but have you ever thought to yourself, I don't this is life stinks. I was better off living with the wicked. That Old Testament generation did not enter the land of promise. Elijah has a similar situation, and he says, how long will you halt, stumble, trip over, trying to have it both ways? If God is God, serve God. If, if Baal is God, then let's worship Baal. Well, let's get this thing settled. And that's the way refiners, fire preachers preach. Like Elijah. Like Moses. Like Joshua, even. Do what you want. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And like Malachi, you where are you at? What are you going to do? Because the Messiah will come, as we've been hearing since the Garden of Eden. The Messiah is going to come like a refiner's fire. And those that are righteous, those those that acknowledge by faith, that is the way. That is the way. That's that's his people. That's his Jacob. There is an Esau. There is an Isaac. There is an Ishmael. There's always someone fronting. I'm, I'm good. I'm with God. I'm just the same. I'm just the same. No, no, no one's the same as Jesus. That's right. That's right. Verse 2 might be the key to the whole book. For those who fear my name, chapter 4, verse 2, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing. Not damnation, destruction. For those who see the truth, to those who, oh my goodness, I've been running my own life. Only He can run my life. I give my life. I don't just get religion. I don't just start going to church. No, I trust Him. I trust Him implicitly. I trust Him absolutely. I trust Him without boundary or border or measure. There's no area of my life that I don't trust Him. To those people, chapter 4, verse 2, who fear my name, He will come with healing, healing in His wings, and the healing will be so great. I found this little clip. Put it in your printed notes. It's like a it's like a little cat who got out of the stall and he just hopping around. You gotta have a little bit of farm and you gotta get that picture. <laughs> little calves are born and they wobble around and wobble around for a few hours at the most half a day, usually less. Mom gets them all cleaned up, and it's not long. Half a day, hours, they're just they just pop up. They, they just bounce up like deer. And, and they bounce around and they play and they jump and they fall over and they get back up. And It's just beautiful to watch. That's the picture that the prophet gives. That after the refiner's fire has come, and even when the destructive fire comes, and, 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 and uh, <coughs> want to make a new heaven, a new earth, and you burn there will be those who just dance. Yeah. Yeah. Just hopping around like, like newborn calves. Yeah. Feeling their legs. Mm. Hey, look at me, Mom! How about this, Mom? When's the last time you had joy like that? This is what Habakkuk said. This is what all the prophets we've been looking at the past many weeks. They've all said similar things. <laughs> He's going to bring joy. Chapter 4, verse 6. I send you Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. That's why a lot of people said, when John the Baptist, were you Elijah back in the day? He said, no, but I do come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Fulfillment of this prophecy. 
He will turn the hearts of their children to their fathers and the fathers to their children. So not to take credit, but it turns out this whole father, son, parent, child, teenager illustration is very biblical. But when Christ comes into a house that a man loves his wife the way Christ loves the church, and a woman sees that kind of love and says, I, I just can't keep pushing back and arguing and picking at this guy. He just keeps loving me. Yeah. I don't like how Jesus loves. Wow. When a man loves his wife like that and the wife responds like that, all of a sudden the kids realize, hey, something, something different going on in this house. My parents, they're different than my friend's parents. Something's going on in this house. What's going on in this house? And if you say you, you went to a marriage council and you gave the wrong answer, but if you can say, well, mom and I, or your father and I, you got serious about walking with Jesus. Amen. You got serious about walking with Jesus. Amen. And it changed everything. Yes. Changes everything. Yes, it does. And that's how the Old Testament ends. That two fires are coming. One is to push us back to intimacy with Christ. And the second fire is for those who did not respond to the first fire. Well, that's cruel. Well, I say exactly the opposite. That's merciful. That before God sends the deserved second fire, He sends the first one to warn us. Yes. I think that's merciful. I deserve the second fire. I curse God. Oh, Pastor, I can't believe don't say that. There's no sin in principle. There's no sin in concept. Maybe not particulars, every specific one in, in detail. But in principle and in concept, there's not one commandment I haven't broken. There's not one sin I haven't committed. I don't have my own righteousness. I deserve eternal damnation. But I came to believe that there is a Savior. And He has been speaking to us since the days of Adam and Eve. And he's speaking now. And through a number of sources and means and, 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 and methods, he began to get my attention. And he spoke. I never heard a voice in my ear. But I had thoughts in my head that I knew they had to have come from God. No one ever said things that nice. No one ever said things that clear, that deep, so, so comprehensible, so overwhelming. And he used experiences of life, and he pushed here, and he pulled there, and, and, and brought this person into my life, and took this person out of my life, and he's done all kinds of things, and he's speaking the whole time. And I came to realize, i got to trust him. I, I, I've got to trust him. And maybe that's where you are. That's what the refiner's fire does. It burns away all the junk. That you begin to see true, true value. When you're looking for real values, you'll see Jesus. You'll see righteousness. You'll see it in other people. And you'll ask them, when did you get religion? And they'll say, I don't have religion. I know Jesus. I, I know Jesus. And if they say, well, I, I, I checked all other religions, this religion is better than this one, don't talk to them anymore. Quickly run away. Quickly, quickly run away. Find someone who talks about something bigger than religion. Find someone who talks about a person, a, 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 a creator, a redeemer, that blesses not only in this world, but in the world to come. Talk to someone who knows the living God. And ask them how that God revealed himself or spoke to you, to them. And how might God be speaking to you? And using the most unexpected sources, like me, 
the other people in your life. And yet for all of the amazement at the source, the content of what you're hearing, for the first time it starts to make sense to your crazy life. This is what I've been looking for. You know, I don't know, yield my life to Jesus. That sounds like crazy stuff. Is your life making sense now? Your life is not making sense now. If it were, you wouldn't be looking for some answers to your life. We run to Jesus because of the need. And the need is, I'm messed up. I don't know how to clean myself up. And I don't know how to make sense of life. And Jesus is perfect. That's exactly what I do. That's exactly what I do. Come with me. Come with me. And the refiner's fire is designed to drive us to that. And our job is, as we read earlier, that those who put their faith in the living God, and then they found His righteousness, they begin to talk to one another. And we talk to one another. Come on, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't go back to the life. Come on, come on. We're not called to that anymore. That doesn't hold anything for us any longer. Come on. And friends at work, and friends at, at, at the gym, and, 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 and friends wherever, you hear us talk to one another. And they see us interacting. They say, what are you guys talking about? So, talking about Jesus who changed our life. Oh, you people are crazy. Okay, fine. But ever so often, someone's going to say, I've been wondering, if, is there really a real Christian I could talk to? Well, here we are. Well, here we are. Some will think you're crazy. You should know that going in. Can't stand the heat? Get out of the kitchen. I mean, it's going to happen. It's part of the deal. They hated Jesus. They're not crazy about us either. But some are looking. Some are curious. Some are searching. And they'll hear us talking to one another. They'll see us laughing with one another. A real, genuine, deep, not perverted laugh. It's innocent. It's wholesome. And there's joy in life. And we're not overwhelmed and defeated by all the pressures of the world. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Oh my God. Oh my God. And here are these people loving life and, and it's great and our kids are going to be okay. And What is with you people? It's Jesus. Jesus. If you think that makes me crazy, I hope I go insane. Because the refiner's fire is doing its work. Yeah. And if that doesn't drive you to Jesus, a destroying fire will come in chapter 4. And it will do its purpose. You want a life without Jesus? Here it is. Here it is. You want a life without Jesus? And then we'll be blaming God that he did that. He's saying, only did what you asked. No life without me, this is life without me. And that's how the Old Testament ends. That's how it ends. And then the Messiah comes. Amen. Then the Messiah comes. Now, I, uh, I got three minutes left, and I got about ten minutes more to give. So here we go. Open your hymnal to hymn 223. Open your hymnal to 223. A guy named Horatio Spafford was a lawyer in Chicago. And the Great Chicago Fire, after the Civil War, is at the 1870-something, right after the Civil War, shortly after. Chicago Fire, as we all know, just pretty much devastated leveled this town. And so Spafford says, a wealthy lawyer, had real estate all over, plus his practice and all that he's doing. So, he, you know, he's, he's doing fine. He put his wife and four daughters on a ship and he said, I'll, I'll, I'll catch up with you. I can't stay with you right now. I've got some business. I've got to manage all this mess we're in now. As soon as I get some paperwork settled and, and, and get a firm footing of where we're going, I'll come and join you in, in, in Britain. 
They were going specifically to the country of Wales. Stafford happened to be a good friend of, of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, and Moody was holding meetings in Wales, and they had arranged, I'll, I'll, I'll meet you there, and I'm sending my family ahead of time, they'll be with you, and then I'll join you in a few weeks. Of course, you've probably heard this story. Midway across the Atlantic at some particular point, there was a tragedy at sea, and the ship went down, and only a few survived. And when she finally got somewhere and considered the telegram, she sends back to her husband, I alone have survived. Your four daughters are gone. He quickly finished up his business. He boards passage. He gets close, when he gets close to where his daughters drown, he writes this song. You gotta be kidding. He writes this song. Look at the lyrics. When peace, peace, like a river attends my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whichever, whatever, up or down, in or out, wonderful, horrible, he's taught me to say, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So you may think we're in really difficult times. Well, I want to lovingly say it's only going to get worse. We're approaching, I suspect, the end of the refiner's fire and the destructive fire is looming somewhere in the horizon. And I want you to come to such a place of peace, not because I'm wonderful and I have my own security. I'm not wonderful and Jesus is my only security. But I'm okay with that. It is well, it is well with my soul. You can only sing that if the refiner's fire has had its effect. It's, it's, it's done its purpose. It drove you to the feet of Jesus. But I'm there. Okay, whatever comes, I'm okay. Because I'm here with Jesus. I'm trusting Him. I want you to get to that place. Maybe you're not there. I would love to explain to you how to take the next step and the one after that to get to that place of peace. To be born of the Spirit. To walk in the fullness of intimacy with the living God. Wow. It can happen to you. And I will not dread that destroying fire that shall come. Holds no threat to me at all. Because I'm safe in the arms of Jesus. And so the man says, my four daughters are gone. I'm not saying I'm, I'm happy about that. But my soul is at peace. Because God knows what He's doing. He's loving His people. He's drawing people to Him. And some are cursing Him and going the other way. But not me. I'm trusting you, God. With my daughters, with my marriage, with my, fam my family, my finances, with my eternal future. My life is in your hands. That's what I want you to understand when you sing the verses of this song. So stand with me, let's sing all four verses, all four